Section 42 of Jean Christophe, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jean Christophe, Volume 1, by Romain Roland, translated by Gilbert Canaan, Revolt 1, Part 6. And so she looked at Christophe, and he looked at her. She hardly spoke. An imperceptible smile was enough, a little movement of the corners of her mouth. Christophe was hypnotized by her. Every now and then her smile would fade away. Her face would become cold, her eyes indifferent. She would attend to the meal or speak coldly to the servants. It was as though she were no longer listening. Then her eyes would light up again, and a few words coming pat would show that she had heard and understood everything. She coldly examined her brother's judgment of Christophe. She knew Franz's crazes. Her irony had had fine sport when she saw Christophe appear, whose looks and distinction had been vaunted by her brother. It seemed to her that Franz had a special gift for seeing facts as they are not, or perhaps he only thought it a paradoxical joke. But when she looked at Christophe more closely, she recognized that what Franz had said was not altogether false, and as she went on with her scrutiny, she discovered in Christophe a vague, unbalanced, though robust and bold power. That gave her pleasure, for she knew better than any the rarity of power. She was able to make Christophe talk about whatever she liked, and reveal his thoughts, and display the limitations and defects of his mind. She made him play the piano. She did not love music, but she understood it, and she saw Christophe's musical originality, although his music had roused no sort of emotion in her. Without the least change in the coldness of her manner, with a few short, apt, and certainly not flattering remarks, she showed her growing interest in Christophe. Christophe saw it, and he was proud of it, for he felt the worth of such judgment and the rarity of her approbation. He made no secret of his desire to win it, and he set about it so naively as to make the three of them smile. He talked only to Judith, and for Judith. He was as unconcerned with the others as though they did not exist. Franz watched him as he talked. He followed his every word, with his lips and eyes, with a mixture of admiration and amusement, and he laughed aloud as he glanced at his father and his sister, who listened impassively and pretended not to notice him. Lothar Mannheim, a tall old man, heavily built, stooping a little, red-faced, with grey hair standing straight up on end, very black moustache and eyebrows, a heavy though energetic and jovial face which gave the impression of great vitality, had also studied Christophe during the first part of the dinner, slyly but good-naturedly, and he too had recognized at once that there was something in the boy— but he was not interested in music or musicians. It was not in his line. He knew nothing about it, and made no secret of his ignorance. He even boasted of it. When a man of that sort confesses his ignorance of anything, he does so to feed his vanity. As Christophe had clearly shown at once, with a rudeness in which there was no shade of malice, that he could, without regret, dispense with the society of the banker, and that the society of Fraulein Judith Mannheim would serve perfectly to fill his evening, old Lothair, in some amusement, had taken his seat by the fire. 
He read his paper, listening vaguely and ironically to Christophe's crotchets and his queer music, which sometimes made him laugh inwardly at the idea that there could be people who understood it and found pleasure in it. He did not trouble to follow the conversation. He relied on his daughter's cleverness to tell him exactly what the newcomer was worth. She discharged her duty conscientiously. When Christophe had gone, Lothair asked Judith, "'Well, you probed him enough. What do you think of the artist?' She laughed, thought for a moment, reckoned up, and said, "'He is a little cracked, but he is not stupid.' "'Good,' said Lothair. "'I thought so, too. He will succeed, then?' "'Yes, I think so. He has power.' "'Very good,' said Lothair, with the magnificent logic of the strong who are only interested in the strong. "'We must help him.' Christophe went away, filled with admiration for Judith Mannheim. He was not in love with her, as Judith thought. They were both, she with her subtlety, he with his instinct, which took the place of mind in him, mistaken about each other. Christophe was fascinated by the enigma and the intense activity of her mind, but he did not love her. His eyes and his intelligence were ensnared. His heart escaped. Why? It were difficult to tell because he had caught a glimpse of some doubtful, disturbing quality in her? In other circumstances that would have been a reason the more for loving. Love is never stronger than when it goes out to one who will make it suffer. If Christophe did not love Judith, it was not the fault of either of them. The real reason, humiliating enough for both, was that he was still too near his last love. Experience had not made him wiser. But he had loved Ada so much, he had consumed so much faith, force, and illusion in that passion that there was not enough left for a new passion. Before another flame could be kindled, he would have to build a new pyre in his heart. Short of that, there could only be a few flickerings, remnants of the conflagration that had escaped by chance, which asked only to be allowed to burn, cast a brief and brilliant light, and then died down for want of food. Six months later, perhaps, he might have loved Judith blindly. Now he saw in her only a friend, a rather disturbing friend in truth, but he tried to drive his uneasiness back. It reminded him of Ada. There was no attraction in that memory. He preferred not to think of it. What attracted him in Judith was everything in her which was different from other women, not that which she had in common with them. She was the first intelligent woman he had met, she was intelligent from head to foot. Even her beauty, her gestures, her movements, her features, the fold of her lips, her eyes, her hands, her slender elegance, was the reflection of her intelligence. Her body was molded by her intelligence. Without her intelligence, she would have passed unnoticed. And, no doubt, she would even have been thought plain by most people. Her intelligence delighted Christophe. He thought it larger and more free than it was. He could not yet know how deceptive it was. He longed ardently to confide in her and to impart his ideas to her. He had never found anybody to take an interest in his dreams. He was turned in upon himself. What joy, then, to find a woman to be his friend! That he had not a sister had been one of the sorrows of his childhood. It seemed to him that a sister would have understood him more than a brother could have done and when he met Judith he felt that childish and illusory hope of having a brotherly love spring up in him. Not being in love, love seemed to him a poor thing compared with friendship. 
Judith felt this little shade of feeling and was hurt by it. She was not in love with Christophe, and as she had excited other passions in other young men of the town, rich young men of better position, she could not feel any great satisfaction in knowing Christophe to be in love with her. But it piqued her to know that he was not in love. No doubt she was pleased with him for confiding his plans. She was not surprised by it, but it was a little mortifying for her to know that she could only exercise an intellectual influence over him. An unreasoning influence is much more precious to a woman. She did not even exercise her influence. Christophe only courted her mind. Judith's intellect was imperious. She was used to molding to her will the soft thoughts of the young men of her acquaintance. As she knew their mediocrity, she found no pleasure in holding sway over them. With Christophe the pursuit was more interesting because more difficult. She was not interested in his projects, but she would have liked to direct his originality of thought, his ill-grown power, and to make them good, in her own way, of course, and not in Christophe's, which she did not take the trouble to understand. She saw at once that she could not succeed without a struggle. She had marked down in Christophe all sorts of notions and ideas which she thought childish and extravagant. They were weeds to her. She tried hard to eradicate them. She did not get rid of a single one. She did not gain the least satisfaction for her vanity. Christophe was intractable. Not being in love, he had no reason for surrendering his ideas to her. She grew keen on the game and instinctively tried for some time to overcome him. Christophe was very nearly taken in again in spite of his lucidity of mind at that time. Men are easily taken in by any flattery of their vanity or their desires, and an artist is twice as easy to trick as any other man because he has more imagination. Judith had only to draw Christophe into a dangerous flirtation to bowl him over once more, more thoroughly than ever. But as usual, she soon wearied of the game. She found that such a conquest was hardly worth while. Christophe was already boring her. She did not understand him. She did not understand him beyond a certain point. Up to that she understood everything. Her admirable intelligence could not take her beyond it. She needed a heart, or in default of that, the thing which could give the illusion of one for a time, love. She understood Christophe's criticism of people and things. It amused her and seemed to her true enough. She had thought much the same herself. But what she did not understand was that such ideas might have an influence on practical life, when it might be dangerous or awkward to apply them. The attitude of revolt against everybody and everything which Christophe had taken up led to nothing. He could not imagine that he was going to reform the world. And then? It was waste of time to knock one's head against a wall. A clever man judges men, laughs at them in secret, despises them a little, but he does as they do, only a little better. It is the only way of mastering them. Thought is one world, action is another. What boots it for a man to be the victim of his thoughts? Since men are so stupid as not to be able to bear the truth, why force it on them? To accept their weakness, to seem to bow to it, and to feel free to despise them in his heart, is there not a secret joy in that? The joy of a clever slave? Certainly. But all the world is a slave. There is no getting away from that. It is useless to protest against it. Better to be a slave deliberately of one's own free will, and to avoid ridiculous and futile conflict, 
Besides, the worst slavery of all is to be the slave of one's own thoughts and to sacrifice everything to them. There is no need to deceive one's self. She saw clearly that if Christophe went on, as he seemed determined to do, with his aggressive refusal to compromise with the prejudices of German art and German mind, he would turn everybody against him, even his patrons. He was courting inevitable ruin. She did not understand why he so obstinately held out against himself, and so took pleasure in digging his own ruin. To have understood him, she would have had to be able to understand that his aim was not success, but his own faith. He believed in art. He believed in his art. He believed in himself, as realities not only superior to interest, but also to his own life. When he was a little out of patience with her remarks, and told her so in his naive arrogance, she just shrugged her shoulders. She did not take him seriously. She thought he was using big words, such as she was accustomed to hearing from her brother, when he announced periodically his absurd and ridiculous resolutions, which he never by any chance put into practice. And then, when she saw that Christophe really believed in what he said, she thought him mad, and lost interest in him. After that she took no trouble to appear to advantage, and she showed herself as she was, much more German, and average German, than she seemed to be at first, more perhaps than she thought. The Jews are quite erroneously reproached with not belonging to any nation, and with forming from one end of Europe to the other a homogeneous people, impervious to the influence of the different races with which they have pitched their tents. In reality there is no race which more easily takes on the impress of the country through which it passes. And if there are many characteristics in common between a French Jew and a German Jew, there are many more different characteristics derived from their new country, of which with incredible rapidity they assimilate the habits of mind, more the habits than the mind, indeed. But habit, which is a second nature to all men, is in most of them all the nature that they have, and the result is that the majority of the autochthonous citizens of any country have very little right to reproach the Jews with the lack of a profound and reasonable national feeling of which they themselves possess nothing at all. The women, always more sensible to external influences, more easily adaptable to the conditions of life and to change with them, Jewish women throughout Europe assume the physical and moral customs often exaggerating them, of the country in which they live, without losing the shadow and the strange, fluid, solid, and haunting quality of their race. This idea came to Christophe. At the Mannheims he met Judith's aunts, cousins, and friends. Though there was little of the German in their eyes, ardent and too close together, their noses going down to their lips, their strong features, their red blood coursing under their coarse brown skins, Though almost all of them seemed hardly at all fashioned to be German, they were all extraordinarily German. They had the same way of talking, of dressing, of overdressing. Judith was much the best of them all, and comparison with them made all that was exceptional in her intelligence, all that she had made of herself, shine forth. But she had most of their faults, just as much as they. She was much more free than they, morally, almost absolutely free, but socially she was no more free, or at least her practical sense usurped the place of her freedom of mind. She believed in society, in class, 
in prejudice, because when all was told she found them to her advantage. It was idle for her to laugh at the German spirit. She followed it, like any German. Her intelligence made her see the mediocrity of some artist of reputation, but she respected him none the less because of his reputation, and if she met him personally she would admire him, for her vanity was flattered. She had no love for the works of Brahms, and she suspected him of being an artist of the second rank, but his fame impressed her, and as she had received five or six letters from him, the result was that she thought him the greatest musician of the day. She had no doubt as to Christophe's real worth, or as to the stupidity of Lieutenant Detlev von Fleischer, but she was more flattered by the homage the lieutenant deigned to pay to her millions than by Christophe's friendship, for a dull officer is a man of another caste. It is more difficult for a German Jewess to enter that caste than for any other woman. Although she was not deceived by these futile follies, and although she knew quite well that if she did marry Lieutenant Detlev von Fleischer, she would be doing him a great honor, she set herself to the conquest. She stooped so low as to make eyes at the fool and to flatter his vanity. The proud Jewess, who had a thousand reasons for her pride, the clever, disdainful daughter of Mannheim the banker lowered herself and acted like any of the little middle-class German women whom she despised. End of section 42